Okay, we are in Acts chapter 1. Go to your happy place. We're going to look at verses 12 through 14. I'm working from the New American Standard Bible this morning. And it says in Acts 1, 12. Then they, meaning the disciples, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all, with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. It's God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for what feels like a fresh season in our church. And I thank you for the expressions of generosity coming through our body right now, the, the money our body gave for the youth, all the people that have been digging out the mesas and others in Montecito. Thank you, God. Thank you that you're just working in us and through us by grace, in spite of us, not because of us, and for your own glory, not ours. Not to us, but to your name be the glory. But we thank you for a fresh move of your spirit. And we'd say, We want even more. We want more of your purposes in our lives and in our church. So in your word this morning, Holy Spirit, teach us. Give us insight, wisdom, discernment, knowledge. Show us what's important in our lives. Show us the opportunity that is before us in Christ and in the work of the Holy Spirit. We ask together, please, Lord, that you would anoint me to teach and preach, that this time would be fruitful for the furtherances of your purposes and for the good of this family. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a silly title, I realize that. But that is a phrase that we often hear in our culture. Go to your happy place. People are like, I got to go to my happy place. Um, And if you actually Google, which I almost never Google anything. I like to find stuff out on my own. But I Googled go to your happy place. And there's like the Huffington Post, 10 ways to discover your happy place. There's all these like little books and articles on how to find your happy place, 10 steps, how to find it, what is your happy place. So I just want to ask us, I want us to think about this. I know it's silly, but what is your happy place? When you think about that phrase, if you've ever heard it before, where in your mind do you go? That place to you that helps you in difficult times, that place that seems safe and life-giving to you. What we all realize is that as God's people, we have been given a real happy place here on earth, and it is called the throne of grace. We have a real happy place as believers in the throne of grace. Look what Hebrews 4.16 says. Let us, believers in Christ, then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. What I want to suggest to us is that this is meant to be for the believer, the happy place. The happy place is that place you go when everything's going wrong. And so many people in our church lately have been talking about everything that's going wrong. It seems like many of us are having a hard time. Just saw a guy in the bathroom right before I came up here. I'm like, bro, how are you doing? He's like, honestly, I'm not doing that good. And then before that, I was talking to one of the members of our worship team. How are you doing? I'm not doing that good. There's just been hard times for a lot of us. 
And we need what God is offering us here in the throne of grace. We need this happy place where we can find mercy and grace in the time of need. And obviously it has to do with Jesus. This is Christ's throne. Look what the context of the passage says as we back up a couple verses. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, and we looked at that last week in the text, Jesus, the son of God, Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So Jesus, through his work on the cross, has made a way for us to come to the throne of God where there is unlimited resource and there is unlimited grace. Notice it's called the throne of grace. means that what we discover there is undeserved kindness from God. And Jesus, our great high priest, who rules and reigns on the throne, has ascended to heaven. We looked at that again last week. He is empathetic with us. He knows what it's like to deal with the flesh of humanity. God in Christ draped himself in humanity, suffered many of the things that we suffered, and yet was without sin so that he could help sinners. And through the cross and the forgiveness of sins has made a way so that we can approach this place of help, this happy place with confidence. That's what I want us to get today. So because of what Christ has done for us, we can confidently come before God's throne and receive mercy and grace and help in the time of need. Not timidly, not fearfully, not according to what we deserve or don't deserve, have succeeded in doing or failed to do, but according to what Jesus has done for us. As beloved sons and daughters of God, confidently, my little Fifi, My Fifi, three years old. She knows that she can approach daddy confidently. She knows she's my little girl and that I would do anything for my little girl. And it's never a timid thing. When I come home from work, she runs into my arms with abandon. And no matter what the terrain, she dives into my arms. And I gotta like figure out, I gotta know like I have to catch this chick right now. And as daddy, there is no way I am dropping that girl. Leap with full confidence, Fifi. Daddy will catch you. With full confidence, we're to come to God in our deepest spaces and places of need. And there we receive mercy and grace. Now, last week we saw Jesus ascend unto heaven where he's enthroned and he's interceding for us. And part of what this text reminds us of is the fact that he is also present to us. This is a, a, a profound theological truth about Christ. He is high and exalted, enthroned, but he is also present and with, imminent, the word is. High and exalted, enthroned, but he is also present with us. Remember some of the last things that Jesus said to the disciples in the Great Commission. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now that takes a little bit of figuring 
Because one of the last things Jesus said is, look, go do this, be engaged in my mission, and I am always with you. And then in the text we saw last week, he said, peace out. And he ascended unto heaven. And the guys were standing, literally says in the text that they were standing there like. So it takes a little bit of figure in that. If Jesus left and he's enthroned and he's in heaven and he's coming again, remember the two angels appeared and said, what, what are you guys looking at? He's coming again in the same way. But it takes a bit of figuring. In what way is he present to us as he promised? Well, we return to the theology of Fifi. My three-year-old Fifi says, Jesus lives in my heart. She's a good theologian. That is absolutely true. Jesus is present with us in the sense of Christ in us. The hope of glory, the New Testament says. When we repent of our sins and put our faith in Christ, he takes up residence in us by his spirit. So he is definitely in us. And in that way, Christ is with us. But here's the question for us and what I think we see playing out in the book of Acts. How do we experience Christ with us? How do we lean into that truth where Jesus said, and I am with you always, surely I am with you. Yes, he's in our hearts, but how might we lean into that practically and experience that in reality? And I think what our text begins to teach us and the rest of the book of Acts will teach us is that this is, and many other ways, but also this is experienced in prayer. Return to what our text says in verse 14. These all, the disciples and everyone gathered with them, 120 of them we read in subsequent verses, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. So they had been given the command to go to all the nations and make disciples. They'd been given the promise, surely I am with you always. And they had been told to wait in Jerusalem until they received power from on high, the Holy Spirit coming upon them. Another promise. So they've been given the command, go and make disciples of all the nations. They've been given the promise, surely I am with you always, even to the end. And they were told to wait on the other promise when the Holy Spirit would come upon them and they would receive power to be his witnesses. And the way that they leaned into and sought to experience these promises of God, that God was with them, was in prayer. That's what we see them doing. The first thing after Jesus ascends and he makes a promises is they go to prayer. And the book of Acts is the record of how Christianity began to spread throughout the world. God's mission unfolding through his people. And what we see is that prayer is central in the story of God's mission unfolding. We'll see that throughout the book of Acts. Prayer is mentioned 31 times in the book of Acts. It's in 20 of 28 chapters. We see it from beginning to end. The first thing we see Jesus' followers doing after Jesus ascends is praying. The first time they didn't know what to do, they prayed. The first summary description we're given of the church says that they were devoted to prayer. The first miracle we see performed by the apostles was while they were going to pray. The first time the mission encounters serious opposition, the church responds in 
prayer. The first time the apostles had to make a tough decision about priorities and carrying out God's mission. They prioritized the first time a vision is given to the church about the gospel going to the Gentiles was while Peter was in the first time an apostle was martyred and another about to be. The church responded in the first time a church discerned the Holy Spirit calling two people by name to a specific mission was while they were and they responded by laying their hands on the two of them and they prayed for them. And on it goes. The book of Acts is the story of God's people responding to the promises and the call of God. And in particular, God's promise to be with them in his mission. And they do so largely through prayer. Now, what prayer necessitates is a sense of dependence upon God. That's the key. And all those instances that we list there, we, we see that they, they, they sense that they needed God for what was in front of them, for what they were encountering in their lives, whether it was a problem, an opportunity, opposition, a need for miraculous power, or a clear calling that they had to obey. There was this sense of a need to depend upon God. And who doesn't have that kind of stuff going on in their lives? Who isn't experiencing need or opposition or difficulty or need a greater display of God's power in our lives and in our community? Who doesn't want to figure out the clear calling? So prayer is primarily the heart's expression of dependence upon God. And it expresses and it addresses or it does something about the needs in our lives, and in our hearts. Throughout scripture, we see people praying when they are in need. It's not complicated. And in Christ, as we said, we have direct, unfettered to access to God. So I want us to hear again the invitation of the text from Hebrews chapter 14, or Hebrews chapter whatever, where it says, 4, 16, let us then, Approach God's throne of grace with confidence. I think the part that we neglect is the approaching part. This isn't like ethereal, passive type of stuff. This is like involved, active, hands-on, practical stuff. Let us approach the place where we can receive help, the throne of grace, our happy place. And we all have needs in our lives that require Mercy from God and grace from God. Think about Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13, where it says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Now, we love verse 11. Verse 11 declares the kindness and the goodness of God and the fact that it's directed toward us. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, and they're good because God is good and he wants to do good things for us and he gives his people good gifts, amen? But then notice how God says we ought to respond to that. He says then, in light of that, 
in response to my goodness and the good things I want to do in your life, you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. So notice the correct response or posture of God's people to the goodness of God, right? We don't want to be those greedy people who are like, okay, God, you're good. Give me good gifts. And then we just like hit the road. God says, look, I'm good. And I got you. Leap with confidence. I'm going to catch you. Never going to let you fall. But your response to my goodness is that you will come to me and pray to me. And I want you to know, I will listen to you. Listen to what your heavenly father says. I will listen to you. The God of the universe who spoke all things into existence, who has all power and authority, who sustains all things with the power of his word, who knows the beginning from the end, who formed you in your mother's womb and has numbered your days and is greater than any foe or opposition or disaster says, I will listen to you. Therefore, let us approach with confidence this throne of grace. And then look at the promise that he ends with. He says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. God wants us to find him. He wants us to discover him. So the the disciples are living in this tension of Jesus just said, yo, I'm with you always, peace out. And he ascends to heaven. And so they're trying to discover, well, what does withness look like with Christ ascended and enthroned as we wait for his return? It looks like this they discover. It looks like prayer. It looks like responding to God's goodness and his promises and a posture of prayer. Look at the promise of Jeremiah 33, verses two and three. This is what the Lord says. He who made the earth, the Lord who formed it and established it, the Lord is his name. Call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. And let that like stir up your hunger for going to God who knows all things. He says, look, come, call on me and I'll teach you the deep things of myself. I'm the Lord who formed the heaven and the earth. The Lord is my name. Call to me and I'll answer you. So, so far we've seen from these scriptures, he's not only listening, but he intends to answer. He's good. He's got good intentions toward us. He's listening. He wants to answer. He wants to reveal himself to us and he wants to reveal mysteries to us. I don't even know what he's talking about when he says great unsearchable things, but I want to know. These things are discovered in the posture of prayer. I think amongst other things, they have to do with like character, the mysteries of the human heart, mysteries of God himself, the way that God works in the world, things about our marriages and our parenting and our lives, our vocations, our callings. Remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 7, 7, where he said very simply, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. Again, I think that our problem is we often just neglect the asking. We don't engage in the seeking. We don't go after it and knocking. But the invitation is there. James gets down to the nitty gritty and James says in chapter 4, verse 2, this, you desire, but you don't have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. But you don't have because you don't ask God. Notice what this verse points out to us. We often go about getting the things that we perceive ourselves to need or things that we desire the wrong way. God is offering us a different way. Right? You want, you don't have, so you as humanity end up killing each other. You covet, you're jealous, 
And so you quarrel and you fight with each other. Why don't we try a different way? Why don't you come to your heavenly father who loves you? Who is good and has good things for you? Who invites you to call upon him? Who has opened the way through Christ to a throne of grace where he can receive mercy and grace in the time of need? Who listens to you? Who will answer you? Who will reveal himself to you? And deep unsearchable things. Why don't you try going to him with your needs instead of killing each other? It's like revolutionary stuff, dude. But we do in our lives. Maybe it's not as extreme as killing or quarreling and fighting. No, it is. But we, in our needs and our desires, the way that we perceive them, we often turn to so many other things before we turn to God. I had a deep disappointment in my life this week. I, I'm not going to share the details about it, but I had a deep disappointment that had to do with relationships. And I found myself wanting to, like, talk to certain people about it. A bunch of different people came to mind, but, oh, I just need to go, like, talk to so-and-so. I just need to tell her I need to ask my wife to do this or I need to go. And I found myself, like, going all these other places and some other more unhealthy places, wanting to go to those places before I realized, like, I need to go to my true happy place. It took me a little while, you know what I mean? I was looking to other people and other ways and other ways to numb it and all all these other things rather than just like, well, let me go to my heavenly father who formed me, who knows me, who loves me, who is good, who has good things for me, who's invited me to come into his very presence, who listens to me, who answers me, who shows me the deep things about my heartbreak. Why don't we go to God more readily? When you confess that we so often turn to these other things. But what we have here is a better invitation. A better invitation in tough spaces and places. Psalm 50 says, Make thankfulness your sacrifice to God and keep the vows you made to the Most High. Then call on me when you're in trouble and I will rescue you and you will give me glory. That's a pretty simple equation. Call on me when you're in trouble. I'll rescue you and you will give me glory. Call on me when you're in trouble. Don't go to that substance. Don't go to that illicit thing. You don't have to call her first. You don't have to call him first. Just try. Call on me when you're in trouble. Just try it. And I'll rescue you. And you'll give me glory. The disciples are trying to work this out. Christ said he's with us, but he's gone. How does that play out with this great task that's in front of us? Remember also this from Isaiah 57. For this is what the high and exalted one says, right? They just seen Jesus be uh, exalted, ascended in heaven, who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So that's this basic theology that we talked about at the beginning of the sermon. Our understanding of God from the word is that he is high and exalted, but he's also present and readily available to us. Exalted and imminent. And he says, yeah, I've got this throne thing. I'm ruling and reigning from heaven, but wherever there's a broken heart, I am also there. Near to the broken heart. That's a promise of God, of God's true word. 
And so I want us to be thinking this week, like, in what ways are we in trouble? Seems like so many of us are having hard times right now. In what ways are we brokenhearted? And then think about and listen to God's promises about our trouble and our heartbroken states and our difficulties and the overwhelming obstacles in front of us. Psalm 55, 22, cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He'll sustain you. Listen to that word. He'll sustain you. Man, sometimes I feel like I can't keep myself together. I can't keep my life together. I can't keep all this stuff together. There's so many anxieties. There's so many fears. Cast them upon the Lord. Peter wrote the same thing later on in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. Cast your anxieties upon the Lord because he cares for you. And that word cast, the idea is to roll it. Like take your burden, this heavy burden that's on your shoulders, and roll it over onto God. Because he is the God who daily bears our burdens, the psalmist said. Daily bears our burdens. Take these big things and try to roll them over onto God. Concerns about kids and marriage, betrayal, addiction, sickness, bitterness, disappointment with life. All of these are common to humanity. We all experience those sorts of things. All of these are opportunities to experience God's willingness to sustain us. In the book we gave you, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, Jim Cimbala talks a bit about this concept, and he says this about our troubles. Trouble is one of God's great servants because it reminds us of how much we continually need the Lord. Listen, otherwise, we tend to forget about entreating him, asking him for things, begging him. For some reason, we want to carry on by ourselves. Why is that? For some reason, we want to carry on by ourselves. Now, we probably wouldn't say that, but our lack of prayer is evidence of that. Probably wouldn't say it. We'd probably say, no, I want to lean upon the Lord. I want to press into him. But our lack of prayer is evidence of that. Why is it that we want to carry on ourselves? And can we begin to see, I think Jim Cimbala is right, the author of that book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, we gave you, when he says trouble is one of God's great servants. In other words, God will use trouble to turn our attention to him that he might show his goodness and faithfulness to us and that we might experience truly God with us. But there's no way around it. That place is prayer. Imagine that you're like starting a relationship And you go out on a first date and you're like, okay, here's the deal for this date. This is cool. We'll hang out. We'll be in proximity, but we're never going to talk. If you're dating a guy like that, leave. (laughs) Imagine at some point in your marriage, you're like, you know what? This has been a cool 20 years. My wife and I have been married 20 years. Sweetheart, this has been a good 20 years, but let's just not talk anymore. It's no relationship. There's no development there. There's no moving forward. There's no depth of understanding. There's no blossoming. God has given us communication with one another as a gift through which relationships grow. And so it is in our relationship with God. The ability to communicate with God, to speak to God, to hear from God, to commune with God in prayer is a gift through which our relationship grows and through which we experience more of his goodness and his presence and his power in our lives. But why do we live like we just want to carry on ourselves? 
God in his word is lovingly trying to save us from that self-reliance, from that lack of God dependence. So why do I in hard times turn to other things so often before I turn to God? And I usually get around to it. Like usually I talk to three or four people and they did a few things and I had to go for a surf. And then I was like, dude, I should totally pray about this. But why is that like number five on my list? Why don't we go to him more like running, like the, like the verse said, with confidence? Is it because we somehow think that he doesn't love us enough or he doesn't care? But be reminded of Romans chapter 8, verse 32, that our kids are learning about a youth camp this weekend. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Or at the moment you encounter trouble in your life like we all do, and you start to falsely interpret it as some sign that God doesn't love you enough, remember the cross. Like, how more loudly and wonderfully can God say, I love you, than giving his son for you? For God so loved you that he gave his son for you. And if he was willing to give his son for us, why do we think he's some old curmudgeon that wants to withhold good things from us? The verse says, if he gave his son for you, he's not going to withhold other good things for you. Now, there's a little bit of friction because often what we call good and what God calls good are not always aligned. Yeah, such is life, figure it out. But I think if we would look more often at the cross of Christ, what Jesus has done for us, what God has given us in his son, we would have a greater understanding or, or inkling of his love for us. We'd be more quickly to go to us, right? Or go to him, excuse me. We want to run to the person that loves us most. It's God. And we need to be reminded that he actually hears. Sometimes, quite honestly, when I'm praying, it feels like my prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling. But that's not true. That's my feelings. And you can't trust your feelings. Yesterday up at camp, I was, um, we have this little off-road vehicle and we were taking kids for off-road rides. Carla, Brian, your daughter's crazy. (laughs) Dude, she's crazy. Like I'm a crazy off-road guy and I know how to like push the right foot down. Like I go crazy and she's like, you're not crazy enough. (laughs) Wow. Anyway, so... We're getting pretty crazy. We're like riding in this off-road thing. And I gave the kids a little speech right before we go. I'd say, listen, keep your hands inside the vehicle. They had helmets. They had goggles. There was like a roll cage and there was a net and there was seatbelt. So save your email. Incredibly safe. And I told them, okay, listen, don't under any circumstance, don't put your hands outside the roll cage. I said, sometimes it's going to feel like we're going to roll over. And they're like, And they said, but you can't always trust your feelings. But that's what we do. We get ruled by our feelings and we start flailing around with our hands. You can't trust your feelings. So it feels like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling and that God doesn't hear you. That's not true. Join with the psalmist in Psalm 116 who said, I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my prayer for mercy. Because he bends down to listen. I will pray as long as I have breath. Death wrapped its ropes around me. The terrors of the grave overtook me. I saw only trouble and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Please, Lord, save me. How kind is the Lord? How good is he? So merciful, this God of ours. 
So the exhortation in light of the text is that you would give God a chance and go more often to this happy place, the throne of grace. Give God a chance to show his goodness in your life, his mercy in your life. I have a um, recommendation for prayer. There's two things I do in my life because I'm generally horrible about prayer. If I'm just like by myself and I just start praying in my mind, like most people pray in their mind when they're by themselves, my mind wanders so quickly. I get out like three words and then I'm just like, you know what I mean? And then I, so that doesn't work for me. So I do two things. I try to gather with people on a regular basis and pray with them, prayer meetings. That's one thing. But I want to talk about this thing. I also then read scripture and pray through it by journaling. I know that doesn't seem super manly and I'm way more manly than that in reality. But I'm also weak and I really need God and I'm like super distracted and I'm cheesy and I can't pray. But when I write it down, so I journal generally through the Psalms. The Psalms are ancient prayers of God's people. It's the Hebrew prayer book. And so I'll start in Psalm 1, and throughout the year, I just will read a psalm in the morning, and then I'll just kind of pray in response to that. Often, I'm just praying exactly what the psalmist said, because the psalmist is always going through deep stuff, right? There's a bunch of different psalmists, but like their lives were cray, like ours. Like they were going through crazy stuff. And sometimes they're praying like, God, just kill my enemies. Just maim them, God. (laughs) And we feel that way sometimes. So we pray along with the psalmist. No, I'm kidding. What I find in the Psalms, deep expression of anguish, of disappointment, of sorrow, and of faith, and of hope, and of praise, and about who God is. So I'll just read a Psalm, think about it for a little bit, and then I'll just start to write in my journal, and the first word is Lord or Dear Father, and I just start writing out my prayers. And I found that when I write them out, I think more deeply on my prayers. I, found, I find that I pray more honestly. Because I'm just like driving around and praying in my head. I'm like, yeah, Lord, forgive me. I'm such a sinner. But I feel when I'm writing it out, I will like name the sins. Lord, forgive me for this. So when I die, you can never read my journals. <laughs> Ever. But I've discovered in my own life, it's been a really deep place of healing, of discovering God, of growing in prayer and seeing God answer. And then I go back and I look and I can see all these answered prayers and all these journals, all these answered prayers. But I I need sort of an outline. So the book of Psalms helps me with that. Someone in our church recently recommended a book by Mark Batterson to me. Uh, It's from his book, The Circle Maker. It's a secondary to that. It's called uh, 40 Days of Prayer, the 40-Day Prayer Challenge or something. Like, this thing is awesome. Do it. And I started doing it, and I was super stoked on it, and I quit after day 11. Because I'm just that cheesy. Like, 40 days, I, I can't stick with it. I quit after day 11. And I was praying about some stuff that was going on in my life. It was pretty deep at the time. And I'll just be honest, in the last week, it's come back to bite me really hard. The stuff that I didn't follow through on in prayer. And I realize one of the great disappointments of my life is the failure to persevere in prayer. We've got to persevere in prayer. There's lots of reasons for that. There's a mystery of God's timing. Who knows about God's timing? Remember that scene in Lord of the Rings where Gandalf comes into town and Frodo goes running to meet his carriage and Frodo's like, Gandalf, you're late. 
And Gandalf says, a wizard is never late. Or early. A wizard always arrives precisely when he means to. God is the ultimate wizard. And I feel like Frodo. I'm always like, God, you're late. Hurry up. Where were you? Why didn't you? When will you? But I find that in that waiting, there's a work that's happening. While we're waiting on God, God is doing a work in us that builds trust and faith. And in the end, we give, end up giving him glory. And Jesus taught over and over again that men ought to pray always and not lose heart, that we need to pray with perseverance. Importunity, the old King James word. So there's a mystery of God's timing. Who knows that he's the ultimate wizard? There's spiritual warfare that happens when we pray. There's all kinds of stuff going on, but we need to persevere in prayer. That's what we see the disciples doing again in our text, Acts 1.14. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. They were continually doing this. Now, they didn't have to wait that long. Jesus had said, wait in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. From the time he said that until the time it happened was 10 days. We'll get to that text in a couple weeks. It was only 10 days. But they persevered the whole time. What have you let go in prayer that you need to pick back up? For whom have you been praying where you've just given up? The Bible says, don't give up. God is good. Press in, persevere in prayer and see God move. See God work. I can't explain the full mystery of having to persevere in prayer, but I do know from the word of God that he is listening, that he bends down to hear and that he will answer and that he is good and that he has good things in store for us. And while we are waiting, he is working. The psalmist said when he was in a posture of waiting in the midst of hard things in Psalm 27, he says, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living in this lifetime. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. I would have despaired unless I believed. The thing about prayer is it takes some trust, some faith, some belief, and who God is, and what he said about himself, and his relationship to us, and his goodness, and his sovereignty. The psalmist said, my life has been so hard, I would totally freak out unless I believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord made manifest in the land of the living in this lifetime. So then he says, so wait for the Lord. Let your heart take courage. God has given you promises. God is good. God is able. Wait for the Lord. So what are you waiting on God for? What is it? Is it restoration in your marriage? Is it some great financial opportunity that's before you? Some loss that you've suffered? Some reconciliation that you hope for, that you've lost hope for? What, what, what is it? What are you waiting for? A wayward child to come back? What is it? God is good. Wait on the Lord. And the posture of waiting for the believer is prayer. And we persevere. But I, I, I want to finish here. I want you to notice in the text that I think the disciples' prayers at this point were bigger than just their own problems or needs. Take all your problems to God, yes. But as God's people, we must also catch a vision for intercession. We've got to learn to pray for other people. To intercede means to work on behalf of another. We've got to catch a vision for intercession. Like what Christianity does is deliver us from selfishness. So we can't only always ever let our prayers be selfish. 
Sometimes we've got to consider other people more important than ourselves, like it says in the book of Philippians, have the same mind that was also on Christ as he demonstrated on the cross and be willing to take up the cause and the need of others and pray for them. Paul would write to Timothy and say in somewhere, I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them intercede on their behalf and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings or all who are in authority. Yes, even Trump. So that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is good, right? Praying for other people. Even our leaders. God said, this is good and it pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. So I want us to learn not only to take our problems and our needs and our desires to God more quickly, I want us to learn to respond to God's truth by interceding for others. That's part of what it is to be God's people because this is good and it pleases God. And God wants to save people. And what we've always learned is that God chooses to work through us rather than independent of us. The only thing that God loves to do more than save people is do so through the prayers of his people. So who do you need to pray for this week? Journal it, write it down, start praying for someone, go after them, like target them in prayer. That's what that one book is, the 40 Prayer Challenge by Mark Batterson. It's all about like targeting this one thing in prayer and like praying a circle around it. Go the whole 40 days, but target something in prayer and begin to intercede for somebody else. But also, at some point, prayer has to not only be, God help me, God, help this other person. But prayer has to be at some point, and I bring my life to you in submission to be used for your purposes. And that's actually what the disciples were doing in our text. God had given them the great commission. said, you will receive power from on high when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in all the earth. So what they were doing in this prayer meeting, I believe, is they were bringing their lives before him in a posture of waiting in humility, trust in his promises and saying, my life is readily available, God, for your purposes. That's got to be the ultimate expression of prayer. And in that, as they were praying together, they had unity. Did you notice in our text once again? These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. This is a beautiful picture of a church. They had unity around this with one mind, with one purpose, with one goal, with one vision. They were doing it together. That's the actual technical definition of fellowship. We think fellowship just means, okay, there's going to be some coffee at church and we're going to go there and like hang out. But it's actually shared investment in a shared goal. Our goal has been given to us in Christ to make disciples of all the nations. And prayer unifies us in that. So I'm hoping that in a spring, a spring in the spirit, we will grow together as a praying church and therefore experience deeper unity and deeper fellowship like the early church. That's why we're looking at the book of Acts. Deeper unity, deeper fellowship that is not just based around our needs, but about what God wants to do for his glory through us. And as they prayed together as a church, this is the early church, they would discover all of God's promises about his mission to be true. It started with one simple act of obedience. Remember verse 12? 
Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. Don't miss that. Jesus said, go into all the nations, making disciples. Wait till power on high has come from you or upon you from the Holy Spirit. And then he ascends to heaven. And notice how they just, they just, they just obey. They left the Mount of Olives where they were when Jesus left. And instead of like cooking out and being like, okay, dude, here's what we got to do. We got to organize and do this. And you go here and we'll do this. And well, we should just, let's go fishing right now because, you know, let's just wait around. Like whatever. They just obeyed. Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. So they just went back to Jerusalem. And the text tells us it was a Sabbath day journey away. I won't bother you with the background, but that's about 2,000 yards. Meaning it wasn't that far, but it was a little bit of ways. And they just obeyed Jesus. And in that obedience and that act of prayer coming to the throne of grace, they would discover God's great purposes in them and through them. Is there a single small act of obedience that God is calling you to right now? Maybe it's just a 2,000 yard step. It's not that big, but you know God is calling you to obey. Man, there is discovery of joy in the place of obeying Jesus. So... We're going to enter into a time of worship. And I just want us to be a church that prays. The prayer team will be up here. Remember a couple weeks ago when like hundreds of people were coming forward getting prayed for? Might not be like that, but like it's the church. Let's pray. If you need prayer, if you you have needs that need to be addressed today, come up. I want us to be comfortable in taking expressions and postures before God that maybe We don't normally do. So if you normally sit in your seat, come forward, get on your face before the Lord, pray for him. Be super bold and like offer to pray for someone next to you or something. You might not even know him. You're just like, dude, let me pray for you. They're like, oh no. And then just. (laughs) Let's not forget to pray for our community at this time. Remember the verse that we've been looking at the last few weeks from Psalm 66, verse 12. It says, you brought us through, or we went through fires and we went through floods, but you brought us into a place of abundance. We're praying spiritual abundance for our community right now. So prayer needs covered, interceding for others covered, and then submit your life to the Lord today. Lord, I want to be used for your purposes and your glory. Let's pursue after that stuff. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for the invitation that we have today. Please teach us now to respond to it in faith and faithfully. All of our hope is in you, Jesus. We're going to put ourselves out there in prayer, trusting because your word says so, that you're listening, that you're bending down today to hear us and that you'll answer. We say, like the disciples said, teach us to pray. Teach us today to come boldly to the throne of grace. Show us what boldness means for us today. If it's getting on our faces, if it's coming forward for prayer, if it's praying for others, teach us to come boldly before the throne of grace because we, see we need mercy and help in our times of need. Thank you that you love us and you're near to us now. Be exalted in our praying, Lord.